0: All right, Um, we uh, actually have several things that we're trying to accomplish today. Uh, We're gonna be kind of weaving back and forth between a couple of different sources, Uh, and then at the end of it, we're gonna try to put a bow on top of it and and, uh, uh, make this a little bit more clear. We're gonna begin with a recap. A good approach to this book in particular is an approach that I learned in law school. And if I'd learned it as an undergrad, I would have had much better grades as an undergrad. But uh, it's basically a technique called outlining. And if you look at C.S. Lewis pretty carefully, you'll see that he'll make a general statement and then he'll offer two or three exceptions to that statement or two or three illustrations of that statement. And so The whole approach uh, that Lewis takes lends itself to outlining. Sometimes if you just look at it as paragraphs stacked on top of paragraphs, it can be a bit daunting. But if you uh, outline it as you go through, either in your margins or maybe in a notebook, uh, that would uh, be a useful approach for, for many, I suspect. Um, I will also tell you again that it's good to keep a copy of Mere Christianity close by at hand as you're working through the screw tape letters. A lot of the concepts that are just touched upon or that are uh, dealt with in a way as though he assumes you understand it more fully uh, or develop more fully in Mere Christianity, not in the screw tape letters. Last week, you will recall that the patient had made some new friends. They were secular and they were very sophisticated. Uh, The patient was leading a dual life of sorts. He was trying to be a new Christian, trying to grow as a new Christian, and he was trying to appeal to his very smart, oh so sophisticated friends. Uh, And um, uh, He had tricked himself into believing that he could kind of balance this tension. His, his approach was, I got this, I got this. I can be sophisticated on Saturday night and worshipful and reverent on Sunday morning. Uh, I have this under control. And we learned very quickly last week that it wasn't the patient who tricked himself, but it was the demons who tricked him. Uh, the trickery came from demons and their master, uh, who they refer to as their, ha- their father, uh, Satan. We learned also, again, that you have this theme that works through the screw tape letters of Satan as as having two great aims, and one is to keep the loss lost, and the other is to cheat the believer out of the benefits and the spiritual growth and the peace and the fruits that come from growing as a Christian. So Satan really has two aims. He's a liar and he's a cheat, okay? And you saw both of those on display last week. Um, My father-in-law used to talk about how um, uh, when, let's just say, kids sort of grow into adolescence and then they reach a certain point in life, A, they know everything, and B, they are full of derisiveness, irony, and sarcasm. Uh, Those were the three words that he used. And um, uh, those are like the patient's new friends. They're very sophisticated. They take nothing seriously. They're so above it all, Uh, and so the patient is, A, trying to appeal to them, uh, but also he is trying to grow as a Christian. Uh, The tension that he finds himself in puts the patient in a place where he becomes dull, he becomes deadened, especially to all of the pleasures that are God-given, and as we saw last week, this is very, very fertile ground for a demon to make his attack. Um, let's look at our uh, Ecclesiastes slides, if we can pull those up. The patient basically, last week, he found himself uh, in uh, a landscape, a bad place. Uh, and it was a place where, where the devil could really work on him and where the demons could work on him. And I had, um, I'm working through the Timothy Keller uh, daily devotions for this year. I know some of you are as well. And this week there was a passage, he sort of shifted from Proverbs into uh, Ecclesiastes. And there was a passage from early in Ecclesiastes that seemed to sort of uh, appeal to where and show where the patient found himself as a result of this prodding and poking of of, uh, the demons here. Uh, It's at Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 2. Uh, I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure, so enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. Remember, it's the normal pleasures of life that the patient no longer finds to be appealing uh, because the demons have worn him down. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So you have both types of pleasure uh, uh, that Lewis is describing played out right here uh, in the scripture. Uh, What does it mean to be under the sun? That's where the patient finds himself. What does this mean in the context of laughter and pleasure? as a writer of Ecclesiastes uses it. Um, Under the sun is what lawyers sometimes call a term of art. When you see that in Ecclesiastes or occasionally elsewhere in scripture, uh, it means a place, a world without God, a world without the comfort of God, a world without the sense of the immediacy of God. Um, And also uh, it is a world with no awareness of eternity. It's just sort of stuck in the here and now Uh, and uh, very perhaps fearful of eternity. Uh, It's a place where uh, neither pleasure nor laughter do us much good, and that is the place where the patient finds himself uh, at this point. under the sun is a key phrase in Ecclesiastes. I would really like to go back and look at that a little more closely at some point because Ecclesiastes, it illustrates the trough that was described in week one. Ecclesiastes also illustrates this dull, flat, pleasureless place uh, in which the patient found himself last week. So, at any rate, I thought that was a pretty good scriptural illustration of where screw tape and wormwood have brought their patient. Uh, And it is here where Screwtape and Wormwood sort of had this exposition uh, of how to cheat a patient out of all pleasure. Why is it important to make a patient an an aspiring Christian? Uh, uh, Why is it important to rob that patient of pleasure? Remember, the devil is the thief of joy. We talked about that last week as well. Uh, We learned last week that all pleasure originates with God. Uh, The devil uh, cannot take credit for inventing a single pleasure. All he can do is distort pleasures, taint them, uh, corrupt them in some way. And finally last week, it sort of ended on a happy note because the patient had realized his true position, the precarious place in which he found himself, and had rededicated himself as a Christian. Uh, This rededication, came about chiefly by enjoying pleasures as God intended them to be. You recall that the patient had picked up a book, had read the book, not to show off to his new friends how brilliant and dazzling and sparkling he was, but simply for the pleasure of reading a book. The patient had gone on a walk through the country to a place that he always enjoyed going. Uh, And both of these pleasures had sort of redirected the patient back toward God uh, and the things of God. So that's kind of, I think, uh, in a very nutshell, uh, summarized form uh, where we went last week uh, and how we got there. Um, I would say that there's one passage from our first week that you should bear in mind as you're thinking about this subject of pleasure and the devil and how the devil views pleasure. Um, And that is that great quote uh, where um, uh, Wormwood is saying to Screw Tape, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. To get the man's soul and give him nothing in return, that is really what gladdens our Father's heart. Um, so, happily, it seems that the patient has slid from the grasp of the demons uh, and is on the right track. So where the chapters that we're looking at today open is they're saying, huh, this is a disaster. How are we gonna turn this situation around? Uh, and they do it in two ways. They do it by looking and discussing pride and anxiety. And I'm gonna take care of pride. John's gonna take care of anxiety. I'm a little anxious about this. Yeah, so. and he's, he's very anxious about it. But uh, at any rate, that's, that's how uh, they decide to attack the demon and see if they can salvage this great project of turning this man away from God and back toward hell. So um, when chapter 14 opens, the patient has rededicated himself as a new convert, he's realized his plight, and worst of all, he has become humble. What a terrible thing to have happen. Uh, (laughs) I recall not long ago, speaking of humility, I was looking on Facebook, Okay, which is Facebook, humility, okay, those those two concepts really don't go very well together. But uh, I was looking at Facebook, and I ran across the page of a politician who shall remain unnamed. But nobody who's in this room, by the way. But um, the politician was talking about his humility on Facebook, of all places. And... Um, it sort of reminded me of Shakespeare's great line about the lady doth protest too much, uh, you know, the point made that if you have to go around talking about what a great lady you are, you know, well, maybe there's there's a question uh, there. And it's the same way here. If you have to go around talking about how humble you are, you probably aren't. Uh, so. Um, I saw the irony of it on Facebook and uh, it just kind of jumped out at me and I made a note of it to share with you today. Um, Talking about your own humility on Facebook is sort of like inviting your audience to come pull up a chair and watch you do something really humble. (laughs) Okay, that's what it's like. Uh, And we laugh because this is so absurd. This is so filled with irony. Uh, what makes it funnier is the person who's going around talking about how humble they are is the only one in the room who really believes they're humble. So um, uh, realizing this and these basic truths and this irony uh, and putting that kind of right at the front of your mind is really what's going on in chapter 14. Uh, I think it's a very good word picture or an image to, to open up with our description of uh in our summary of chapter 14. Recall that the devil is a liar and he is a cheat. And the person who is on Facebook talking about the humility uh, uh, may fall into both of those categories, but certainly falls into one. What happens the moment one begins but realizes that they're humble? The humility goes away and what replaces it? Pride, absolutely. There's a great quote um, on page 69, and I don't think I asked that we reduce this one to a slide, uh, but this is right in the first part of chapter 14 um, where uh, Screwtape is advising Wormwood, catch him at the moment when he is really poor in spirit and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride, pride at his own humility, will appear. So you can be proud even of your humility. Uh, uh, Pride is always a quick step away uh, from humility. Um, And what's wrong with pride? Well, uh, some say it's pretty close to self-esteem. Some say I take pride in this, I take pride in that. Some say I'm really proud of you. Uh, um, But to really get a good explanation of pride and the peculiar unique risk that it poses to a Christian, um, and not just a new Christian, but a Christian at any point of life's journey, uh, I think you really have to go back and look at mere Christianity. And in Book 3, Chapter 8, Mere Christianity, Lewis titles the chapter, The Great Sin. He's going through the virtues, he's going through the sins, The greatest sin of all is pride. It's the foundational sin, it's the threshold sin, it's the sin through which all other sins are birthed. Um, How would you define pride? Any takers? I didn't think there would be, but uh, just in case, I wrote out a little definition. I described it uh, as self-will, self-will, wanting to be in charge in a way and in areas that God has reserved for himself. Uh, So wanting to take the place of God. Um, Lewis writes in Mere Christianity on the subject of pride that among all of the vices, he said, the greatest vice, it's not what you would think it may be. He says, unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of these are mere flea flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. And pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. And so, pride is something you really need to know about, is something we need to guard against, and chapter 14 sort of exposes some of our most common vulnerabilities to the sin of pride. Uh, I would note also that it is subtle, uh, it's separated from its opposite corresponding virtue, humility, by about a million miles, but also by the, by the thinnest of boundaries. Uh, you can go from one to the other in a matter of seconds, and uh, the demons sort of discuss that uh, tendency of, of how to reduce the patient uh, uh, back to a state of pridefulness, how to knock him off track. Now, humility gives way to pride in just a matter of seconds. Some would say nanoseconds. Um, the minute you become aware that you are humble, uh, pride pounces uh, very quickly. Uh, we can be proud of our own humility, but uh, there's one other type of pride that we have to guard against, and this is fleshed out in chapter 14 as well, uh, and that is when Tape advises uh, Wormwood to make the patient proud of his faith, okay? You can be proud of your humility. You can be proud of your faith. You can say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. Uh, I may have this problem, I may have, may have that problem, but I'm not like those folks sitting over there or over here or whatever. So it's a peculiar and a particular vulnerability of Christians. Uh, our takeaway uh, uh, is to be mindful of it, to uh, uh, try to detect it in ourselves, um, and it is pride in this context that uh, Screw Tape is encouraging Wormwood to cultivate in the patient. Much of the chapter or letter 14 is about how God intends humility to function. Uh, the true operation of humility in contrast to pride uh, and its central role in the life of a Christian. Just as pride is the great sin, humility is the great virtue. Um, and... Uh, it's how the demons can best cultivate pride, pride in humility itself, pride in one's faithfulness, pride in one's virtue uh, that takes up so much of the chapter that we're looking at. Anybody have any comments at this point? Okay, It's really a great chapter. About, it's a very short chapter, but there's a lot here, and there's a lot in the next one as well. So that's kind of why we broke them out the way we did. Also, not only be mindful of it, watch for it in yourself, because it's very subtle, it just catches up on you. It catches up on you about your faith, it catches up on you even about uh, the the virtue of humility. Uh, Be mindful of it, uh, but also uh, it's how you view yourself in relationship to others. Um, Pride has a competitive edge to it, Uh, and that competitiveness is is baked right into us. Some would say it's a survival skill, but it also is something that uh, uh, pits us against each other uh, in a very negative way. Uh, If you look, and this is why I said we would get to it, um, uh, Lewis really gives us in Mere Christianity three examples of true humility. He gives you illustrations and this is where that word picture comes in and where that outline technique comes in because I kept looking at the text and I realized uh, that really he sort of made a general statement and then he gave three illustrations and I said mere Christianity but it's actually in screw tape. Okay, it's letter 14 and it's uh, on my volume, it's page 71. This is sort of the antithesis of pride to follow up on what Laura was talking about. You're mindful of it, but this is the place to where you want to get yourself, especially in relationship to others. Uh, and I'm gonna change the pronouns and get around so that it's clear uh, we're talking about us. Um, God wants to bring the man to a state of mind in which he could design the best cathedral in the world, know it to be the best, and rejoice in that fact, without being any more or less or otherwise glad at having done it than if it had been done by someone else. So when you say, well, I designed this, no one else could do this, that's pride. When you say, I designed this, I'm very happy about it, but I would be equally happy if John had designed it, if Laura had designed it, Uh, then you're kind of getting where you need to go in terms of combating pride. God wants uh, him in the end to be so free from any bias in his own favor that he can rejoice in his own talents as frankly and gratefully as in his neighbor's talents. So that's another illustration of humility. And then there's a third illustration. God wants each man in the long run to be able to recognize all creatures, even himself, as glorious and excellent things. There's an element of loving your neighbor as yourself and loving yourself as your neighbor uh, in combating pride and in humility. Um, And what is the end of all of this? What is the goal of all of this? It's to bring you to a point where God kills off our animal self-love as soon as possible. Uh, and then gives us a new kind of self-love. You remember last year or last week we saw how God takes away our will, our determination to promote our own interests, our pride, and replaces it with a new type of self-will, which is to be one with Him and to do His will. You see the same theme here. God takes away our sin-tainted self-love and replaces it with a more healthy self-love a charity and gratitude for all selves, including our own, where we have really learned to love our neighbors as ourselves. And at that point, we will be allowed to love ourselves as our neighbors. So that's the state uh, at which we need to try to get ourselves. Be mindful when pride is slipping up on us, ready to attack us from behind Uh, and realize what the antithesis of pride is, what its opposite is, which is humility, and try to get us there. One trap that the devil sometimes throws our way is instead of humility, the way Lewis has just illustrated it with these three illustrations, uh, is self-deprecation. Well, I'm not really that good. Well, I'm not really that great. That's not humility. Okay, And there's nothing that honors God about dishonoring the gifts that he has given you. Uh, I I remember reading something
1: by Timothy Keller that said that that is actually reverse pride. That's a great way to describe it. It's reverse pride. Pride, that is, I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, because pride is, that person's not good enough. Reverse pride is, I'm not good enough. But it still draws the attention to you.
0: All right. Well, that's the end game. That's where we need to get. We need to be mindful of pridefulness, our tendency toward pridefulness, how close by it always is, even at things where we would normally be humble uh, or in situations where we wouldn't link up with pride. Uh, and then uh, be mindful of it and combat it by realizing where it is you need to be and try to steer your mind and your soul back in that direction as quickly as possible. That's a handful, mouthful, I understand that, but. Now we're going to move along to anxiety. So uh, why don't we uh, see what chapter 15 has to tell us about how the devil uses anxiety. Yeah, this
1: is a quote you didn't use from Mere Christianity. For pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. This, This is a good jumping off spot for... Anxiety, because even reading this, I feel a little anxious. In reading this, the 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 uh, screw tape begins this letter uh, about anxiety, and so you'll see that there's going to be a lot of correlation between letter 14 that Gil had talked about and letter 15 that talks about anxiety. You, there are a lot of things that are that are very similar, and and um, he starts off this chapter by noting that. God wants people to chiefly think about or be preoccupied with two things. That is eternity, not the future, but eternity, and the present. What's left out? The past, thank you. I heard someone whisper it with a little bit of timidness. Be prideful here, say it. Just teasing. The past and then the future. Right? So the past and the future. What God wants us to do is uh, be settled in the present and eternity. And Mere Christianity actually talks about this also, where he says that Christians need to have one foot now on earth and one foot in eternity in heaven. Kind of keep our minds straight. And because of this, because this is the goal of God, screw tape is uh, telling wormwood that our goal or their goal is the exact opposite their goal is to get the patient's attention off of the eternity or the eternal and off of the present and to be captivated or overly preoccupied by either the past or the future and even though the past is very powerful it is not as powerful as when Screw Tape here right into Wormwood, it's not as powerful as the future, because he says, "Get them into the clutches of an anxiety-ridden and unknown future." Now we can have anxiety about the past, right? Oh, I said something that I shouldn't have said and now this person's gonna tell another person and that person's gonna tell another person and it's gonna change like telephone when we were in kindergarten. You know, whisper to this. By the time it gets around the circle, it's totally different. Nobody's gonna, I need, I'm feeling anxious about being, you know, I gotta make my view. I gotta make my, you know, I gotta tell my side of the story, right? There's a little bit of pride in that. But nothing is as powerful, as as powerful that is, nothing is as powerful as anxiety about the future. This is what Screwtape says here. It is far better to make them live in the future. Biological necessity makes all their passions point in that direction already. So that thought about the future inflames hope and Fear. One more time, Screwtape writes Nearly all the vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. Fear, adverse, lust, and ambition, they all look ahead. Now, what Screwtape wants the patient to do is be overly pained by anxiety about the future and ready and willing to break God's commands in the present. Now, I've been thinking about this and and did a little research because I'm not good at doing analogies, but here's the analogy, all right? If you want to understand what Screw Tape is saying here and how horribly dangerous this is for Christians, I want you to drive home and I want you to constantly look in the rearview mirror the whole time. But what does that do? You have very little consciousness about where you are right now and any impending accident or crash or missed opportunity or landmark that you'd have to uh, um, uh, be aware of or live for a day constantly looking over your shoulder. Just keep on walking around, but look over your shoulder. See where you've been. You're gonna run into something. You're gonna hit a door. You're gonna run into someone else. But the main thing is you're not going to be aware of the present. The present. Remember, Tape wants the patient to be overly occupied with the past or the future. And God wants us to be occupied or captivated by the present and eternity. He says a lot more in this, but I I think it's good for us just to stop here for a moment because I think anxiety is really big. I think anxiety, and for me, I'll tell you, um, pride and anxiety have a lot to do with this. Think of something that is on your calendar in the next few days. I'll, I'll say it just happens happened to me uh, a few moments before this all started. I think of Gil. I think, and, and rightly so, uh, Gil is, is, is an intelligent man. And he has spent, I mean, he doesn't watch much TV. I, I binge watch stuff on, on Peacock sometimes. Um, I, I think I should be a little bit better. This is not me trying to be reverse pride here. But here's the thing. I get a little anxious. Before I start, am I going to be good enough? Am I going to say it right? Have I been obedient? Have I done my thing? You know, we, we, we feel a little bit anxiety, and it's based upon the pride of what other people are going to think. So pride and anxiety, they really go hand in hand. You, you think about something that is you are not looking forward to. Maybe it's a meeting. Maybe it's uh, you're coming face to face with somebody that really did you wrong, and you've been looking forward to speaking your piece, and, um, and, and, and we're motivated by that. We're, we're motivated by um, the, the pride that things aren't right, and instead of making them right, we want to make them right based upon what is going to elevate ourselves. So there's anxiety, there, there's pride, and, and it all goes together. And, and this, is, this is something that is so very uh, prevalent. You can, we've talked about mere Christianity, but let's talk about some of our, Lewis's others. Uh, Pilgrim's Regress. Read that by C.S. Lewis, about John, a, a young man who is trying to figure out what his Christian life is all about, and he starts looking and measuring himself by everybody else around. And he gets anxious about that. That, that. That's one. Or how about the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is a uh, a great uh, example. Edmund, the White Witch, uh, tries to convince Edmund to stay with her forever by offering him enchanted Turkish delight. I don't know what that means, but it's enchanted, so it it's must good. be good. That reminds him of his childhood and Edmund becomes so captivated by that taste and the memories of that that he is willing to betray his siblings and remain in Narnia uh, under the witch's rule. You could go to Prince Caspian, which is the, one of the later books in the Chronicles of Narnia, and, and see some very similar um, things that are, are going on, being driven by anxiety, be driven by the nostalgia of the past, living in the past, living in the future, and finding that your present is always, uh, we're unaware of the present. We're unaware of what God is doing right here in our midst at this, this moment. And so the power of being captivated of the, of the past and the power of being preoccupied and overly captivated by the future, all of that happens at the expense of the present and eternity. Because here's the interesting thing. When our minds are looking with anxiousness and anxiety towards the future or the past, we have no room to entertain what God is doing right now. No room to entertain what God is, is doing right now. Now think about that for a second. Because we're, op- we're thinking about yesteryear and we're, we're, we're focused and anxious about tomorrow, that the present is full of those thoughts and that anxiety. I want you to think of one thing that pops into your head when it comes to this type of anxiety that is so controlling and so powerful. If you're breathing here today, you are experiencing this in one way or another right now. What are you missing? What accidents are just ready, waiting to happen? What landmarks are you, um, are, go, are you going past and you, you're not even aware of? Maybe let me rephr- rename landmarks and call them glimpses of God's grace, reminders of His promises that He's here. We're oblivious to those sometimes when we're overly occupied with tomorrow or yesterday. Jesus said, Don't worry about tomorrow. Because tomorrow, will have enough worries of itself. Think, think about 30 days ago. Do you remember on February 12th what you were worried about, anxious about? Now, laugh a little bit because that, that's true. We aren't. For the most part, it is a daily thing, in-the-moment thing that captivates us, that demands our attention to the extent that we are blind to what God is doing right here, right in this moment. And how powerful that is, that we miss those things that God is doing even in our midst right now. There's a a wonderful guy by the name of Charles Spurgeon. You ever heard of this guy? Yeah? Okay, I have too. All right, This this is what he says about this. We must not, this is in in, uh, one of his sermons that is called, um, I'll find it, Living Today, I think it's called, Living Today. Yeah, uh, it doesn't matter. Living in the present, that's his sermon. We must not always, we must not be always looking forward to what is to come, nor always forecasting and foreboding the evils. The present is enough for faith to trust and for obedience to fulfill now i want you to just 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 see the word faith in there the present is enough for faith to trust and for obedience to fulfill it's profound if you didn't catch it if you are if you and i find ourselves overly occupied with the future and the present past We cannot practice faith in God. Do you see that? Because out of pride, our anxiety will will force us to fix it ourselves. Or make it right. Or set the standards for us to get to a place where everything is okay, which we never will get to. And worried about the past? That's the same thing. We want to fix it. We want to cover up the shame with some kind of of external thing. When we are overly occupied by the future, and we are anxious about it and the past, we can't. It's nearly impossible to have confidence in God. You have a bad day at work, and your boss is... You're not sure what he or she is doing or saying. And, and then all of a sudden you get to a place where this could be with a professor or a teacher or whatnot. And, and, and you're worried about how you think that the relationship or down the road there's going to be this point where all hell is going to break loose. And, and the foundation and the floor from under us is going to fall. And and, everything's, and we start thinking, all we can think about is that It's almost as if we have to stop in a moment for us to get to a place where we can say, okay, God, where are you in this? And that's the important thing. When pride or anxiety overwhelms us, you got to stop and get into the eternal spot where you can see things from a different perspective. It's something that God gives us, and it's not of our own. The uh, passage that is so important, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, by, with thanksgiving, make your requests uh, known to God and the peace of God. Notice that this is not, and your peace in God or you will have enough strength to be peaceful with God. No, this is the peace of God. It's genitive, meaning God owns this peace. And when you are ready and willing to receive this, God will give you his peace, which surpasses all understanding and will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, which is what Jesus said is a peace that this world cannot give cannot give. So true peace has to be rooted in a relationship with our Heavenly Father. Every day. It goes back to denying ourselves, picking up our cross, following Him. It goes through those marks of Christianity where we are no longer cultivated or captivated by our past and our present, but we see ourselves right now where is God in this? I'll close on this. 13 years ago, I came to St. Paul. And I was a provisional elder, elder in the United Methodist Church for ordination. Two years after that, I went before the board to become full members of the elder. Three different groups on theology, on the, well, I should know these. <laughs> Teaching, preaching, and uh, something else. All but it, kind of Yeah, all that kind of stuff. I failed, everyone. And I want to tell you that pride came in like a flood. How dare them? Who do they think they are? Some of you were very uh, supportive and wrote me notes and letters. I wrote a letter that I never sent to several people, and I'm glad I never sent those. Over the next few months from that point on, I was put together with another minister, Don Adams, um, who's now retired, and um, for mentor, because I would have to go through this process again, and I remember the first time that I met him, I'm still bitter, I still remember the first time that I met him, he said this, phew, where is God in this? Do you know what that did? Well, it didn't do it right away, because I'm human. But eventually, you know what that did? It brought me to a point to say, okay, step back. Where is God? And where is the eternity in this? Where is the movement of the presence of God and the peace from Him in this moment? It's not always going to be like a light switch that makes all your pain and anxiety go away. But it is an opportunity for us to rest upon the promise that Christ has overcome the world. And that pain and that anxiety, that's of the world. Next week, our uh, readings are going to be, I want you to read, we would like you to read through letter 19, through letter 19, and we'll come back here. We only got a couple more weeks left in this. The letter 19, uh, um, we're going to do 18 and 19 together, but read from 16, 17, all the way up to 19. All right? Thank, Thank you. you. God, please.